Securiosity is back for Friday, July 27th. We've got it all. New Russian spies, hacking cases, and vulnerability disclosure programs. We also have an interview with John Dixon from the Denim Group where we hit election security and also give him the ability to explain why DevSecOps really isn't a buzzword. Another bunch of questions for another week. Let's start the show. Okay, Jen, we are here again on a Friday this time. All right. All right. Two weeks out from Black Hat. How's your schedule looking? Oh, it's already full. I leave Monday night and I come back on the Red Eye Sunday. Um, besides, AGC, DEF CON, Black Hat, um, an event that you and I are doing together. Yeah, we'll talk about that event a little bit more, but it sounds like our dance card is both full with all the events going on. I know I'll be at Black Hat, besides. DEFCON, I'll be there Tuesday through Saturday. Looking forward to it, but also looking forward to talking uh, some of the crazy stuff that happened this week. Absolutely. Private sector cybersecurity companies are becoming increasingly capable of burning intelligence collection efforts by governments. But with this newfound influence, what responsibilities do they hold? Beyond merely attributing sophisticated malware, large-scale cybersecurity firms are often left with tough questions. Should those based in the United States avoid publicly releasing research on cyber espionage campaigns if they look to be conducted by allied governments? What does a company owe its clients when handling homegrown digital threats? Do these companies have a plan of action for upending a government program if and when their research goes public? A number of companies spoke with CyberScoop to enlighten the public on the process. Greg, what are these companies doing? You know, it's complicated what they're doing. Uh, We talked to a number of big-time companies that we all deal with if we're in cybersecurity. We talked to Symantec, talked to Microsoft, uh, Threat Connect, Trend Micro, you know, the big deal cybersecurity companies and the work that they do when they put together intelligence reports and whether or not they're covering operations that are tied to U.S. government operations. And some companies do give a heads up to the government to say, hey, um, we might be burning something. You might want to take this down or you might want to fix it. Some of them don't say anything at all and say the Internet is the Internet and anybody that's acting in bad faith on the Internet is going to get burned no matter what. But there's no real standard. And this is a big thing that a lot of researchers and a lot of companies are talking about and having to deal with because Look, we're not just shutting down worms anymore. We're we're talking about operations that affect millions and billions of dollars in businesses and also start to affect uh, real human life. There are some costs to this that even go beyond geopolitical bounds. So these companies are starting to wrestle with things and decisions that they're making and it's not always clear on the way that they need to handle this. So when does this become a standard? Uh, I don't know. I think it becomes a standard. It gets back to the conversation that we've been having a lot of the time when we're talking about norms. This is a norm. And this is a norm that needs to be figured out in the same way that norms need to be figured out on lines drawn in what can nation states attack what can't they attack what what crosses over into an active war this is part of that conversation in norms it's saying okay how does the private sector work with the way that nation states are doing and this is all very fluid and all very very difficult to figure out so 
Something that a critical infrastructure sector is trying to figure out, car makers are increasingly embracing vulnerability disclosure programs as evidenced by a workshop that's going to be held soon by HackerOne in Detroit. Car makers are increasingly embracing vulnerability disclosure programs as evidenced by a workshop that's going to be held by HackerOne in Detroit. The industry is warmed up to disclosure programs following a frosted reception it gave to security researchers after the infamous Jeep hack in 2015. But observers say more work's needed to get the auto industry's vast supply chain with its complexities and potential vulnerabilities to embrace disclosure programs. Jen, do you think car manufacturers are moving fast enough to embrace these types of programs? I mean, so I think it's interesting. So if you look at that GPAC um, and you, you look back at what happened, at, what Black Hat came out and sort of said about it in one of the talks, and it was basically that it was hacked through the Wi-Fi system in the car. Um, I've got that Wi-Fi system in my car. And that um, hackers actually like trailed that Jeep for an hour um, before they were able to hack into it. The car makers are defending themselves and saying, well... You know, you can't really hack into the vehicle's internal control. So, you know, where the engine is, the brakes, all that stuff. And obviously it happened. Um, and so I think that they are thinking about cybersecurity a little bit. I think they're not doing it as quickly as enough. But I also don't think this is as immediate as a threat as as other things probably are. You know, time will tell. But I think it's right now today, I think they're probably not doing enough. But they probably don't need to move much faster. Well, I think that they do in the standpoint of it needs to be fast because it needs to match up with autonomous vehicles because then well, I think... That, that you, that's a completely different, yeah. Right, but I, I, but the car manufacturers are the ones that are making the autonomous vehicles altogether. So, I mean, you can talk about the cars that you and I drive and it's in human control, that's fine. And I think to the point that they don't need to worry about that so much because ultimately there's a human on the other end of that. When you start to talk about autonomous vehicles, well, then it's just... Well, it's a whole different story. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's a piece of technology. It's a holy piece of technology the same way a computer or a phone or an IoT device is, and I think that it's a lot more susceptible to well, hacking. Well, to be significantly regulated um, around cybersecurity. So, yeah, I, I think vulnerability disclosure programs, the car companies need to embrace them a little bit more because they're definitely going to need to embrace them more when it gets to autom autonomous vehicles being on the road a lot more. Definitely. The head of the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command confirmed over the weekend that he set up a task force to counter Russian cyber threats to U.S. interests, describing Russia as a near-peer threat in cyberspace that has great capabilities General Paul Nakasone said the task force is in line with what the intelligence community has really been doing since post-2016-2017 at a cyber conference in Aspen, Colorado. Nakasone said a cyber attack from another government on U.S. critical infrastructure would cross the threshold into war, and we would certainly respond. Greg, what else do we know about this group? Um... The one thing that we know about this group that I think is very interesting is Nakasone called it the Russia Small Group. I don't know if that is an official term or not inside the NSA, but it's really telling to me that this is the number one threat and we're calling it a small group. I mean, I may be being a little too ham-fisted when I just see the word small. I'm sure small. he's doing that on purpose of making fun of them a little bit. Right. But at the same time, I'm interested to know the amount of people that are on this task force because we've all seen what Russia is capable of over the past two years. They're probably, not even probably, they are the number one threat when we're talking about a cyber adversary. So are we talking 10 people? Are we talking 40 people? Are we talking 200 people? To me, that is really, really interesting because 
These are intelligence firms, and it, it is the Russian intelligence apparatus. I don't think that it's 10 people sitting in the GRU that have caused all this problem. So is it – do we have the manpower – to match what they are doing. And when we talk about this, are we talking about it in terms of information operations, propaganda operations, or are we just talking it in terms of actual hacking with code and phishing and, and zero days and things like that? So look, it's going to be a while, if ever, if we ever learn anything about this, but I think it's very interesting that Nakasone even came forward to say like, yes, we have a dedicated crew to it and they're working on this and they're working on it from the mindset of these are the number one adversaries that we need to watch out for. Do you think they'll ever sort of draft in the private sector like we would draft in for a war? Absolutely. And I think they have because that's just the way that the NSA operates. The NSA operates on contractors the same way that the rest of the defense industry operates on contractors. So I think that there are definitely... I was thinking more of like a hire a hacker one sort of thing to go infiltrate something oh no oh, i i don't think that that model would ever fly if, if capitol hill was like yeah we're gonna rely on a bug bounty <laughs> model to go sort of hack our number one adversaries i i think capitol hills just minds would would be lost <laughs> over on capitol hill about that and i think justifiably i don't think that model really replicates right, well right, right. out that way but no this is very interesting that there is a group dedicated to this and and the recognition that Russia is an adversary right now looking to cause havoc. Speaking of somebody from Russia causing havoc, indicted Russian national Maria Butina took a keen interest in cybersecurity during her time in Washington, D.C. Soon after a civil rights group was hit by phishing attempts and the website was defaced with fake Islamic State messaging, Butina actually reached out to learn more, according to a consultant who helped the group recover from the incident. This is on top of her involvement in some think tank exercises that had cybersecurity involved in it, and she also authored a paper with two American university professors that talked about cybersecurity. Jen, are you sure that you, in fact, didn't come with Butina <laughs> at some point over the last few years? Because she seemingly talked to everybody else involved in cybersecurity in the D.C. area. <laughs> I'm positive that I haven't spoken with her. But, you know, she's, she's got something sort of unique going for her, right? So she's, she's female, into cybersecurity, and into guns. Add cars to that, and you can talk to anybody about anything, anywhere. People will tell you everything that's going on with their company um, by bringing up those subjects. They're impressed that you're a female and into those things. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me that she knew the right circles to inject herself into. The think tank, which we cover in the story was the Atlantic Council. And the Atlantic Council has this Cyber 912 exercise. Mm-hmm. It's basically like a, a, a war gaming type thing where they go over different cybersecurity problems and different cybersecurity scenarios that could play out. I don't think the Atlantic Council ever thought that Russian spies would be interested in doing <laughs> something like that. So it's really interesting the depths that th- she went in order to infiltrate the different areas of what her Russian handlers supposedly wanted to learn. Um, it, it really goes to show, too, that you, you never really know who's walking into these events that you we really have don't. around uh, that we have around the area and even outward in different areas, whether it's Boston, Austin, Las Vegas, Silicon Valley, yeah. that you never really know who's listening to the things that we're talking about. So really, really interesting stuff. 
Evgeny Nikulin, the Russian hacker accused of stealing data from three United States-based tech firms, is uncooperative in his own defense. One of his lawyers said Tuesday, Nikulin is refusing to speak substantially about his criminal defense, detainment, or mental health. He did, however, meet with Russian embassy officials without his lawyers present. What's going on here? This has been the story this week that I've been the most interested in that we've done. So Evgeny Nikulin, one of those three U.S.-based tech firms that he supposedly, allegedly hacked was LinkedIn, (laughs) the the LinkedIn hack of, of a few years ago. Uh, our reporter has been covering this from San Francisco, has been in the courtroom. This guy has been extremely bel- belligerent, will not work with his lawyers. But just out of nowhere, Russian embassy officials from Washington, D.C. go to San Francisco and he meets behind him with closed doors and even the lawyers don't know what's going on. This story should have gained more interest because w- – w- wait a minute. R- I'm going to repeat that. Russian embassy officials visited this hacker who – popped LinkedIn and didn't have any lawyers present. Like that, that should throw up so many red flags that, that it should be, you know, a one stories along with what else is going on with regards to Russia. Right. Um, it seems like there's something else going on here. Yeah. It, it's absolutely wild. We have been following it for a while. We're going to continue to follow it just out of my own personal curiosity yeah. because this guy being belligerent, but yet, wanting to speak to Russian embassy officials, like, that should be a bigger deal. Very strange. So, to the private sector side, Google says its workforce has been fish-proof for more than a year thanks to security keys. Now the company is launching its own, called Titan Security, which includes firmware developed by the omnipresent tech giant itself. The product is available now to Google Cloud customers and will eventually be available to general customers, the company announced Wednesday at its Google Cloud Next conference in San Francisco. The product looks to build upon the momentum that YubiKeys have seen in the past few years. Jen, is this just another case of a tech giant taking product innovation from a smaller shop and trying to make a profit on its own? I mean, I would I would like to say I hope not, and I'd like to say that I hope that there's some economics in there for YubiKeys, um, if in case it is pretty similar, but who knows? Um, certainly this wouldn't be the first time. We talked to Google a little bit, or we tried to talk to Google a little bit to try to get them to talk about how this is different from a YubiKey, and we didn't really get a lot of answers for that. So I think that it's great that a bigger tech firm has announced a product that is 100% security-based. That's moving the right step toward making cybersecurity more mainstream among consumers. However, I mean, this is a big tech giant. Think of what we've heard Amazon do with its sellers in Amazon.com. They see its popular sellers, and then it replicates those those products. This, to me, reminds me a little bit of that. Yes, Google has a bigger audience when it comes to product lines, but YubiKey was first here, and I don't see anything that differentiates this product from a YubiKey, so I'm kind of wondering what really is going on here. I mean, but l- I will say, stuff. yeah, well, stuff. yes, this is a business. This is capitalism. At the same time, go- and good on Google for making this product and and putting it out there for you know general consumers. This is eventually a good thing. Yeah. So while U.S. lawmakers call on Google and Amazon to refrain from banning a powerful censorship circumvention technique called domain fronting. Microsoft's Azure cloud platform continues to allow the practice used to be internet censorship around the world. 
Domain fronting has come into focus as government pressure in countries like China impacts global journalists, dissidents, and thousands who rely on domain fronting as a way to freely access the internet. But spies, hackers, and malware use domain fronting as well include the Russia-linked hacking group APT29 using domain fronting as exfiltrate data from targeted networks. It could mean that domain fronting is on the way out as a practice. Greg, do you see a future for domain fronting? Um, I, I think it's dwindling, and we talked about this in the story that we ran this week. I think it's dwindling a little bit, only because not that it's necessarily a, a bad thing, but it's not. It's a practice that is almost like duct taping something. Yeah. Um, it's it's circumventing stuff based on just a, a practice. There's no standard that allows for this. And Google and Amazon, let's back up a little bit here. Google and Amazon aren't doing this anymore in places like China because China turned around and said, we're going to do what we want to do censorship-wise. And if you want access right. to our business and access to our consumer base, you're going to stop doing this. Fine. I, I, I get it. But at the same time, the internet is supposed to be a free and open de democratization of information. So... But isn't it going to make us a little bit safer from people who wish to do bad things with it? I, that, I feel like, is the grand story of the internet. <laughs> we, we make it for good use and hope that everybody uses it the same way. However, there's ample evidence to show that people use right. it to do bad stuff as well. And going back to the domain fronting story, there is a standard that people like Cloudflare and, and large internet traffic providers are working on to make sure that this doesn't just result back to domain fronting not being available. This standard will allow for ways around censorship to the right. point where it's like, if, okay, if you're going to use the underlying infrastructure of the internet, there's going to be no way to censor anything. And that ultimately is a good thing. So yes, do I see a future for domain fronting? No, but I think it's paved the way for a standard that is ultimately going to get to a place where censorship is eroded. And that ultimately is a good thing. So speaking of something going by the wayside, that is a tremendously good thing for the internet. Adobe is ending technical support for Flash. It's vulnerability riddled multimedia software in 2020. And Senator Ron Wyden wants the federal government to abandon the software even before 2020. The Oregon Democrat has written to the heads of DHS, NSA, and NIST, asking them to help agencies move away from Flash, which has been tied to a slew of software exploits over the years. He said the federal government has too often failed to promptly transition away from software that has been decommissioned. I tend to agree with the senator. Just look at the fact that Microsoft XP is probably still kicking around somewhere really? in the federal government. Yeah. So, Jen, have you turned off all your Flash? I didn't even know people still used Flash. So leave it to the federal government to have this be a problem with. Yeah, uh, I think this is a good thing that somebody's paid attention to be like, look, if you haven't already, I mean, yes, there are probably CIOs and CISOs and people inside IT departments that have already been like, I'm okay, sure. we, we need to yeah. get Flash. If you've been using Flash past 2012, that's a, a big problem. Flash is so vulnerable. I, I can't believe it's still even in existence. So I, I, I commend the senator here for trying to push the federal government away from using it and... I, would, sure. I wouldn't be surprised if they're already on track to get it out of systems altogether anyway. Yeah, I mean, let's hope. It's kind of sad to think that we're still using things like this. 
Okay. And so that brings us to our interview. This week, we talked to John Dixon, who is a principal with the Denim Group. We talked to John about a bunch of different things, including his wardrobe out at Black Hat, which you should definitely listen to all the way through the interview. And we start to talk about his Black Hat wardrobe, which is definitely something you're going to want to listen to. But speaking of Black Hat, Jen and myself are going to be part of an event out at Black Hat we wanted to make you guys aware of. On Thursday, August 9th, you should join us, Virginia CIT, Mach 37, and co-host NS8 and Gula Tech Adventures for Hackers and Entrepreneurs. We're going to be talking about cybersecurity trends. Jen and I are going to kick off. We're going to have a panel talking about all the cybersecurity trends that we've been seeing lately. We're also going to have a bunch of panels. We're going to talk to Adam Rogas, the founder and CEO of NSA. Then we're going to have some founder panels with some people from Polarity, CoFence, Fortalice, uh, CIT Gap Funds. And then we're also going to have an investor panel talking to some investors from all different types of VC firms, Blue Ventures, Gula Tech, uh, Paladin, uh, Next Gen Partners. We're going to have some fun out there while we are in Black Hat on Thursday, August 9th. It is at the NS8 headquarters in Las Vegas. We're going to be tweeting about it. Check out Securiosity on social media. We'll be tweeting it out to get more information. With us today is John Dixon. He's part of Denim Group which helps executives and chief security officers of Fortune 500 companies and government organizations launch and expand their critical application security initiatives. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you. Glad to be here. So tell us more about you. I will. Uh, I would say, by way of background here, uh, ex-Air Force guy, intelligence officer who became a, a cyber person uh, and learned Unix the hard way, which is on deployments. Uh, and backed my way into a very cool career. Have been a on the commercial side for a long time. Uh, with, most recently with KPMG and companies like uh, Trident Data Systems, and have been now with Denim Group for over a decade, about 13 years. Uh, started it. Uh, two other guys t- uh, started it. That Sheridan uh, Chambers and Dan Cornell. I joined right afterwards, and we've now built it to about an 80 person company. Uh, I do spend most of my time helping. Uh, CISOs or CISOs or CSOs uh, with app set application security, but really kind of the thing I'm doing now is DevSecOps, which is the, one of the latest buzzwords, helping organizations that are doing these crazy transformations from, you know, uh, data, data center and, you know, kind of very straightforward development to DevSecOps in cloud throw in every other buzzword, but they're, they're doing these crazy transformations all at the same time and doing things where, like, if you've ever heard of the term microservices, they're building applications differently. That's all happening at the same time. And okay. so uh, that is a little bit mind-numbing. And uh, the way that I put it to my wife is I have to spend a lot of time reading and keeping up with stuff because it's moving so quickly. And I, and I say that to folks. I say that to lay people. I say like non, non, non-practitioners, imagine if you're an accountant, accountant and the generally accepted accounting principles change every three years, or if you were a lawyer and statutory and case law turned over every five years. What and, would you do? You'd have I to mean, go back you, to school. Almost. Well, what happens is you spend, we spend a disproportionate amount of time 
just keeping up and learning and getting more and more focused because you can't know everything. And I was the other day at home of all things, I got, uh, I had to wash the dishes. I got the full, like the full, huge, like this is 30 minutes washing the dishes. So I put on a YouTube thing, I was watching a bit on Chef and Puppet, which is our big DevOps uh, tool. So I was like, at least I'm gonna have something to show for this. At the end of 30 <laughs> minutes, so like, I always feel like there's no dead time. If I'm out doing stupid things in the lawn, I'm like, let me gear up and put on a podcast and at least, you know, cause it's that crazy, you know, and, uh, so anyhow, it's fun so, times. So let's back up for a minute because you did call it a buzzword. So I'm going to give you the floor for okay. a second. DevSecOps, for the people that are done rolling their eyes hearing that term yeah. while they're listening to this, <laughs> explain to me what that is and how it can help enterprises when it comes to their security apparatus. It is uh, one of many transformations that are occurring right now. Again, I would I, the, the, the transformation to cloud or hybrid uh Hosting is one, okay. obviously, and microservices uh, is another one. But essentially, it is this imperative to go faster, to build and deploy and, and iterate quicker around custom software, around software that's being built. And as part of that, as part of that automated uh, process, making sure that security checks are baked in. So it is a what I would consider a historic opportunity. Because like the st starting point of, of, of goodness used to be you would do design efforts and maybe do what is called threat modeling or do some secure security use cases. You would do development and do source code scanning and then you would go to deployment and do security scanning. You do all these activities as part of the SDLC. Right. Very manual, very like, uh, okay, you know, like you'd have to send an email, okay, now t do the, you know, pre-production testing. If you compare that with the 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 DevOps you know approach, which is it's all automated, and from the time you do a code commit to a code repository to the time that it uh, hits the server, essentially no human hands touch it. Well, that's cool, except for the last ten years, it's taken companies a very long time to get their arms around application security and to get the old way implemented. Now they are like that's being blown up. So they might have solved that problem and then the world changed. And so that's that's the key. But I, I keep telling uh, security folks that this is your opportunity now to become a consultant to the uh, that process and not a gatekeeper saying, you know, however, so you can, you can get, you know, your your testing in, you know, part of as part of that pipeline. But here's two challenges. One is number one, that that doesn't mean you can do a full blown, like, you know, a scan source code scan. That means you're going to have to do a smaller subset of scanning to eliminate the scariest stuff, and it's to some degree forego everything else, uh, and do that in parallel or do that out of out of line. The second thing you have to do as a security person is recognize that if you negotiated, you know, what is a break, what breaks the build. What is a critical or high, and where do we stop and fix? How do you then fix it? How do you quickly can't have all this stuff daisy chained and automated, and then have like this huge manual process when you break the build because you identified a vulnerability? So that's the other thing now that we're working with people is like, how do you then take that application vulnerability, stuff it in the issue trackers that the devs use, and fix that within the agreed upon SLA? So like all this stuff, I mean. 
I would say 18 months or two years ago, uh, this was stuff of YouTube and Etsy and Netflix and all that stuff. Now it's everyone? Um, I would say everyone is either talking about it or doing it within the context of their industries. So that's the other thing. It's like, okay, yeah, it's great, but we're not an entertainment client. Yeah, that's great, but we're not an arts and crafts website. You know, like uh, we're regulated. We have, uh, and, and the things that I've heard from, for, for example, the financial guys is as they read, build what, how they're doing software development in the context of this discussion, they are also having to educate their examiners and their auditors and internal audits saying like, look, here's how we're doing. Remember when you used to test and check and do things for your, this is where it lives now and this is where you need to check. Because if you leave it up to auditors and examiners who are orders of magnitude less technical than most people, that they are going to blow up and, you know, like when they don't know, they just say, oh, you failed the audit. So there's a lot of teaching of them. And that's the other role that security people have is typically compliance and regulation, regulatory stuff, is you can't ignore that as part of it. You have to say, okay, guys, here's how we're doing it now. Here's where you can do some testing to make sure we're, we are doing what we say we do. So all that's happening right now, uh, it is... Uh, like I said, it's it's a little bit you know hard to keep keep track of, and the learning curve is substantial for security folks because uh, they don't most of them come from a network security background and don't understand dev for the most part. Most security leaders that's changing a little bit, but now here's another technology stack and another area that is you know an area to understand because again, if you don't ask, if you don't understand it, it's hard to get invited to the right meeting and, and meetings and get and ask the right questions and to you know raise your hand and say hey look you're doing all these testing as part of this pipeline uh, we want to get a security test built in if you don't know where and when and how to get invited to those meetings and ask that question you simply don't get invited so that's our challenge now now is another area for security people to get smart on top of every blockchain and all the other buzzwords so so Greg and I spent a lot of time talking about election security in Russia. What are you doing to support state officials with election security and infrastructure? Uh, we are helping, and again, this is there's 50 snowflakes is the term by IT. They're all different. <laughs> They're all different. Okay. And, you, you, and the big states share certain commonalities, uh, and then the medium states and the real small states. Small states have like just a handful of people. And may or may not even have an. They may not have an IT and or a security person in the Secretary of State group. And the thing to also re realize that the the elections are a state function administered by the states, and the results of those activities are presented up to the to Washington D.C. and our national government in the form of a, either a presidential vote, or here's our state senator, and here's our you know the representatives that our state has elected, and, and present them to Congress. Beyond that. The feds can influence and, and train and provide money and provide standards and all these different things. But what I've learned in the last several months of travel is that this is a very much a state function. What we're trying to do is to prepare them and to essentially transform what, we, what can be uh, you know, a sleepy administrative function to recognize and realize that they are now are potentially on the receiving end of a nation state threat. And that is a big transformation. Uh, some of the bigger states, specifically California, I would also throw in Texas are probably further ahead and have been doing much more rigorous, you know, testing and training and stuff. 
and then there's a full set of you know other outliers that are there but essentially what they have to do is recognize that cyber and i in this context use the term by itself which i don't normally use um <laughs> in the context of of, of really you know a, a nation-state war that that essentially this is that cyber is a means to an end to a broader campaign of disinformation and deception and undermining of confidence in our election system. So it isn't all about cyber. Cyber is the means to an end. So I'll give you a great example. Um, Knox County in Tennessee this right. past spring had this uh, DDoS attack, and that raised a lot of eyebrows. And I saw that, and I was like, that is such an easy attack to do that it um, that I'm surprised it hasn't happened earlier. Because one can do that in a way that makes it at least harder to attribute. But, and, and you talk to election administrators, they'll say, hey, well, you know, that's not the official vote count, right? And there's a little caveat at the bottom of the webpage that says, you know, this is a non-official, blah, 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 blah. But darn it, if everybody that cares is on that website the night of doing refresh, 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 refresh. I mean, that I do it, we all do it. So the point is, if you knock that out, and it's part of a broader campaign. If suddenly there's some bots on Facebook saying, look, the infrastructure has been taken down. Chaos. Chaos. The, the ability to disrupt is so low. The ability to go and affect the vote and change the count or the, the tally is much harder. And, 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 and so that's so the, the point that I think a lot of the deep thinkers are, are saying is like, you don't have to do that. If you really want to undermine the system, you go after the fixed assets, which are the voter registration system and the voter reporting system that, that happen more at the state level. So uh, what we're hoping that the states do, we're coaching them, is to have you know, more resilient reporting infrastructure. That includes DDoS protection. That probably includes having some secondary and tertiary way to report election night just to say oh we're getting votes in from the counties is great but like when you go to bed and you still don't know uh the the, the results of that election because the website is down that's great i mean again the count will come in there won't be a a hanging chad florida you know okay. count issue but there will be a perception issue about the confidence of the system and that's my point is that it's about the confidence and ability to collect and report in a timely manner, not just about collecting and quantifying. So we're 12, 15 weeks away from the midterm elections. What solutions do you think can be put in place within that time frame that can make a real difference? The things that I've seen uh, that I think are making an impact is, is at least training the handful of elected officials at the top. You know, maybe some are putting in what's called two-factor authentication, you know, uh, Making sure that they don't do the things like check, you know, sharing their passwords with their Gmail account, you know, the things that that certain former folks would have probably liked. Um, you know, tra training resilience at the core. I don't think that uh, you know, training the counties and the county administrators is going to have an impact because there's just simply too many. Okay. I don't. I don't think refreshing the hardware around voting systems is going to have an impact. Uh, I like to use Texas as an example. We have 254 counties. Uh, I live in one of the urban counties. We have roughly 2,300 voting machines that are in place. None of them have uh, network connections. I will pass on, so that's, you know, uh, happy to say that, that where I live in Bear County in San Antonio, they actually have protections because the attack surface is non-existent. But 
if you were to look at that in other states, the, the, the amount of money to spend to do a actual technology refresh of those machines is, is breathtaking. And I would say much of the improvements in the last 10 or 15 years have been to solve the problem of the hanging chad involved in the integrity of the tabulation, not in protecting against nation state threats undermining the confidence in the system. That's a different problem set. So let's talk about that money. We know that Congress has allocated $380 million to the states, and the states have started to take that money. But, you know, you were just talking about the astronomical costs there. Is that amount of money that Congress allocated, it, can that make a potential difference, or is it just <laughs> that can political make, theater? <laughs> that can make a potential difference. I mean, like, again, one of the cool things about our democracy is we'll see 50 different ways to do it. And... Now, we don't know if 50 different states are going to get targeted, and maybe some of them will whistle through the graveyard. And not, and, 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 but I do think the argument that if they spent it all on hardware, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't make an impact. I think most of these, the counties are really doing a technology refresh next year, 2019, uh, just because it's a, big, it's a big number. I think the number, again, it's, uh, I keep remembering 2,600, 2,300 roughly in, in our county. You know, just do the math. That's a lot of money, and uh, and most of them will buy systems that have been approved by the feds, which is good. So we're getting a little bit better. What I see uh, happening in the short term is really short term to you know shoring up systems that exist, training, uh, making sure that uh, that they are uh, resilient with what they have in place. Essentially, uh, the one thing I've also encouraged states to do, which is to to do two things, which is to reach out to their local press maybe even do a tabletop with their local press so that if something does go weird election night, they can say, hey, remember we had this tabletop scenario. This is actually happening. The sky isn't falling. We haven't been hacked. We're working through it. If you do that before, and the second thing is to do essentially what the campaigns themselves do, which is to create a rapid response cell. You know, one thing that happens, as you know, on the R&D side up here in D.C., is when they have a they don't let anything sit for one news cycle. They have a rapid response cell, uh, cell to respond to national media to respond with talking points uh, to their elected officials to respond on social media. I think we are if this is in fact an information war between us and the Russians that we have to have that level of of po that posture and be able to have that level of response at our 50 states and certainly at the national level. So those are the kind of things, again, it's, 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 it's less about counting the votes. It's less about tabulation. I think that's important, too. But this is really a different mode. I think certain states and certain secretaries of state have understood that and are scrambling to do what they can in the short term uh, and for the midterm specifically. So we'll see. What else besides election security are you thinking about at Denim Group? Oh gosh, hiring. <laughs> so, like, uh, so that's the one. Uh, you know, like, gosh, there's a shortage of people now, and we can't have too many. And that's we spend a lot of time talking about getting the right sets of people. Uh, and you know, we're based in San Antonio and Austin, so that that's helpful. But we're starting to pick up people all over the place, uh, and getting good people is is a tough time. We spend a lot of time behind the scenes, and again, you won't talk about that like in a black hat. You don't see that. But I think everybody's still scrambling. There's no great answers. You know, we're, we're, we are, the, the tests that we do to get people are technical in nature and, and involve a lot of deep thought. It's not just getting people from cert with certifications. The problem that we have is not only do you have to know security, but you have to know software. 
and that that takes the universe down to a handful of people. So we worry about that a lot, uh, and we we just hired an internal recruiter to start doing that, and it's something that from a business standpoint, we just we keeps us up late at night. So we ask everybody one random question at the end of the interview. And for those of you who don't know John and you've been to like RSA or Black Hat, John has the best T-shirts on the floor. Oh, gosh. Particularly one – I forget if it was RSA or Black Hat last year. John walks around with a T-shirt that says, I don't have purchasing power. Yeah. Just basically so he can be left alone. It's genius. Oh, that's a great idea. It's okay, absolutely so, uh, fantastic. So – Black Hat, DEFCON, it's all coming up. Do you have a T-shirt to top the purchasing power I know what I'm going to do. Okay, so the one I did last year was actually pretty cool. Uh, and, and the weird thing, these just come up. They're usually the, the week before, so I have to scramble to get them done. So the one I did last year was uh, 2000. It was a Russia shirt with flag and red, and it said 2016 U.S. Election Observer. Or <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I, re- I remember that. And okay. then I did one at RSA this last year. Uh, was based on the president's comment that it said "Cyber Mission Accomplished." You know, because it was kind <laughs> of. Uh, so what I'm going to do this year is I'm I'm going to go back. I've had a bunch of people on Twitter uh, do the the no purchase authority thing. So Instead of think, thinking of something clever, I'm going to wear that one again because that one has really struck a chord. And uh, I think that essentially what that was – it wasn't meant to be super snarky. It really originally was to, at RSA to go to other vendors. The irony is, of course, I'm a vendor, right? That's it's kind of funny. But I really meant it to other vendors. Like, don't waste your great sales pitch on me. I have no purchase <laughs> authority. I'm, I should have said, like, I'm one of you or something. I meant it more in that vein. But what happened is I wore it. And it, I started getting feedback on the buyer side from people like, oh, God, I need that T-shirt. And that's when I was like, oh, shoot. I, you know, so we should sell that. So I, I'm going <laughs> to print up a bunch more and, and give those out. They're pretty – they're kind of funny. But I think it's a reaction to the, you know, the, the, the overt and crazy commercialization. And I'll just say one last thing that's kind of funny is I was at RSA two years ago. I was walking by a booth, and I've been in the business for a long time. So, but somebody said, uh, one of the salespeople said, "No, no, no, it's not about uh, the security of the network. It's about network security." <laughs> I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, and I did one of those head. I was like, "Was what did you just say?" And I was like, "Oh my gosh, that was so crazy." So there's a lot of hyperbole and a lot of, and oh, yeah. as I said, the funny story about. Like machine learning and AI, just, you know, we did the, the bingo thing a few years ago, but there'll be, it'll be over the top. Bring your, your snarky black t-shirt and jeans for next, in two weeks from Great. now. But. Well, whether it's snarky t-shirts, election security, DevSec ops, John covers it all. We appreciate you coming Thank on board to talk Thanks, with us John. today. Our pleasure. See you out there. Thanks to John again for talking with us. You know, Jen, I really think we should steal that t-shirt idea because I think a lot of people would buy it. I need that t-shirt idea. I need to have it this year because I'm still getting calls from Black Hat last year. <laughs> there, there is nothing like the vendor call, especially for me, when I can just tell the disappointment in their voice when I go, yeah, I don't buy anything. I'm a journalist. I write about your company. Don't buy anything. Sorry. Well, I do the same thing. I invest in companies. I don't, I'm not a customer. So... Uh, no purchasing power t-shirts for all definitely okay that's it for this week talk to you all soon as always stay curious